it has been a season. I've hugged my son. I hugged my son, but I wanted to hug your son. Oh goodness, I've cried about our future. I had complicated feelings and arguments about marching in a pandemic. And I literally tried to meditate away reality. I read some books. I got my senator on speed dial. But still, there is so much more work to do. That's why we're back. And this is Your Neighbor's Hood. The, the season, season of, of solutions. solutions. With Hannah and Jackie. Hey everyone. We've been focusing on education this month, and as we have gone down our various channels to try and see what we could do to improve the system that we've got, we decided to get back to the nuts and the bolts of the thing. And so we asked a few contributors, what makes a good education? I believe that good education, or when you know something about everything, and everything about one specific subject, we all born with some talents. It's very important uh, to find out which talent you can develop during your life. It's not only working hard can bring you to be the best. It is working hard and having talent in this direction will bring you to this point, which oh, you will enjoy because it is very important to enjoy what you do. My idea of a good education is one in which you are taught that the world is so much bigger and more diverse than just the small corner of the earth that you came from and where small bites of that diversity are incorporated into the curriculum. I think another important component is that you are taught to be inquisitive rather than judging. And I think another important part is that you're taught how to craft well thought out questions and how to find answers to those questions. A good education requires that you're taught how to be collaborative and work with others well. My name is Emily and I live in Durham, North Carolina. I would say that I believe a good education is one that provides kids with both the hard and soft skills to learn what they need to know to thrive and flourish in this world, both as individuals and as citizens of communities. My thinking about education for my own kids has been evolving since before I had them, though certainly I've given it a lot more intentional and focused thought in more recent years. On some level, I've known for a long time that I didn't want to homeschool my kids. At first, it was just pragmatic. I assumed we'd always need to be a two-income family and wasn't eager to replicate the mostly hands-off approach that my parents took. But gradually, through the influence of various experiences, including both of my graduate degrees and the racial equity training I received during that time, my internship with a community development organization, my career working in public education internationally, and just deeper reflection on the value of the diverse friendships I myself am fortunate to have, I came to feel committed to not only sending my kids to school so I could be free to work, but also for the good it would do them, and maybe through them, the world they graduate into. As I read books, listened to podcasts, talked to friends, and learned more about both my local community and the history of this country, 
I became more and more convicted that public schools, particularly those that are truly integrated, can sort of be ground zero for living out and living into the values of a multiracial democracy. The rubber really met the road for our family last year. In January of 2020, I put my son's name into the kindergarten lottery for the public magnet school that happens to be the closest school geographically to where we live. This is a true public school in our district. It's not a public charter. It has an arts and humanities emphasis with a stated focus on equity, diversity, and social consciousness. And it's really an integrated school. Currently, the demographic breakdown is roughly equal parts white, black, and Latinx. In other words, it's not too far off of Durham's racial demographics as a whole. It has a very active PTA that provides the students and staff with a lot of extras. One friend whose child goes there, but had previously gone to a private school, said that the magnet offers many more amenities than the private school did. We were waitlisted at number 18 in the lottery, and we dropped down to number two before they stopped pulling from the list. Last summer, when I called the school and found out from the principal that we for sure wouldn't be getting a spot, I actually started crying on the phone. I was really embarrassed, just totally mortified. I hadn't realized how much I had emotionally invested in the idea of my son going there. I had already told myself that if he didn't get in, we would pivot and wholeheartedly embrace his enrollment at the school we are zoned for. But after that phone call with the principal, I learned that my head and my heart were not yet in alignment. Our zoned school is about 98% Black and Latinx in roughly equal proportions. It cannot be said to be integrated, and it would be a stretch to even say it's integrating. The neighborhood around the school has been gentrifying in recent years, as is much of Durham. But those higher income people moving in have, so far at least, not been sending their kids there. Presumably, they're going to charter schools or private schools or homeschooling. A white family we know who lived very close to the school in a beautiful historic house decided to sell it and move across town in order to be in a different school zone. Last spring, shortly before everything went into COVID lockdown, I ran into someone I know who's in the administration at another public school in town. Ironically, it's the public school the white family I just mentioned now sends their child to. And to be fair, it has similar demographics to the magnet school. So I'm talking to this administrator who's white, and I mentioned our situation, the long shot hopes for the magnet and the name of our zoned school. And although officially school administrators in Durham were not accepting school transfer requests due to space constraints across most of Durham's elementary schools, this administrator offered to let us transfer there if we wanted to. I know this person was trying to be genuinely kind and helpful, but I wasn't comfortable with the favor being offered. I can't even remember exactly what I said by way of polite refusal, but I guess I shared my discomfort with the idea because their response was, it's not white privilege, it's just networking, which kind of solidified my resolve. 
I've actually had some subsequent conversations with this administrator more recently, not about school per se, but more generally about equity and race, and I know they're engaged in their own learning journey. So we enrolled at the school we're zoned for and kicked off kindergarten fully virtual thanks to COVID. My son's class is small and he's the only white student. The school has no PTA and there are two homeless shelters within the school zone. There are a couple of kids in his class who come from one of those. I went into this school year anticipating that there would be things I'd prefer were different, whether administratively or pedagogically, and there have been a few things. But I decided in advance that I wasn't going to let myself get worked up or be overly concerned about such things. I would keep the big picture in mind and assume the best of everyone. And really, overall, it's been so totally fine and even really great. My son loves his school. He adores his teacher. We do not take a colorblind approach to race in our family. Our kids are aware of race and that people are sometimes treated differently and unfairly based on the color of their skin. But when it comes to my son's class, I haven't said anything much explicitly. I've just listened and tried to be ready to engage with him if he says anything. Once he mentioned that everyone besides him has brown skin, it was very matter of fact. I agreed and asked what he thinks about that. He went on to just note the fact that the girls can do really cool things with their hair. My son started school with advantages. He had gone to preschool for two years, so he was familiar with some social skills and the concept of class rules and behavior expectations. Although, side note, Zoom was a whole new thing. He's an introverted kid, and while he participated non-verbally in a variety of ways, and I'm so grateful his teacher was skilled to provide such options, it literally took him a full 100 days to get up the courage to unmute and participate verbally. He also comes from a highly educated family that has prioritized reading from his infancy, so he was well down the road toward literacy when he started school. And of course, the fact that we're able to get by on less than two full incomes is an advantage because it means that I am available to support him during school in a pandemic. Still, he's definitely been learning new things in class. We had no idea Zoom school would be almost three quarters of the year. And there were a lot of days that were really hard when he just refused to log into his class, instead opting to play some of the educational games loaded onto his laptop, or just play with his Legos. He learned a lot that way too. And I just tried to stay in communication with his teacher and not push him too hard because as any parents listening know, pushing usually backfires. When the district finally decided to offer in-person instruction, it was not a hard choice for us. We wanted him to have social engagement and to keep his teacher. I also felt confident in the science supporting school reopening and trusted our district safety plans. A week and a half before reopening, I emailed the principal to ask how I could help. He responded on a Thursday morning saying they needed to procure 300 basic small laundry baskets so each student could keep their belongings by their seat rather than storing everything together in cubbies somewhere else in the classroom. 
I emailed my network of Durham friends and family, many of whom have been with me on an anti-racism learning journey since last summer. And I said, hey, everyone, here's a tangible service opportunity in our city. Who wants to buy some baskets? By the end of that day, I had enough donations to order all 300 baskets, as well as to buy the school supplies for my son's entire class so that his teacher wouldn't have to spend her own money. The principal and his teacher were ecstatic. It was just a very clear example of how social capital works. I haven't started a PTA. I've tried to take a posture of quiet support for the most part. I did offer to help with grant writing since that's kind of a niche skill that I have and the principal has said he'd like to work with me on that this summer. My son started going in person on March 15th. A classmate of his lives a few doors down from us. She lives with her mom, her grandmother, and her two brothers. Most days we drive her to and from school with us since her mom works and they just have one car. And he's become close with a boy in his class who's reading at the same level. Just this week, I managed to speak to the boy's mom to try to arrange a play date. She doesn't have a car, so we're going to meet after hours in the school parking lot so the kids can ride bikes together. The other night, my son formed a heart shape with his fingers and told me that's how he feels about this friend. We've also had a few conversations about another kid in his class who often struggles with behavior. We've talked about what kinds of things make my son feel cranky or angry or sad, like being tired or hungry or nervous or just being around other cranky people and the kinds of things that help when he's feeling that way, like rest or a snack or some attention and snuggles. I'm careful not to claim to know about these other family situations but there are opportunities to cultivate empathy, and I think a good education makes room for that. And of course, there are other classmates he just hasn't really connected with. I listen a lot to this podcast called Integrated Schools. It's been really helpful to me, especially this year. Recently, they interviewed a woman named Elise Boddy, who is a law professor, researcher, and community organizer. She said, the promise of integration was that schools would become places where children would learn to get along or not by working through the practicalities of difference. In these spaces, children could disagree and reconcile their dissimilarities, develop meaningful or casual friendships, or discover that they really did not like each other at all. Not based on race or in spite of race, but in full view of race. If I had any doubts about the decision to send him in person, they evaporated by the second week. We skipped the Friday before spring break to leave town for a camping trip to the coast. As excited as he was for the trip, as we were driving out of town, he told me that he was feeling sad to be missing school because he loves his friends and his teacher. Now I have a new dilemma, and it relates to that magnet school I mentioned earlier. In January of this year, I put his name in the lottery again, this time for first grade. I did it half-heartedly and with a lot of ambivalence, and then I sort of forgot about it. Then one day in early March, I received an email saying he was being offered a spot. The thing I was devastated not to get last year had just landed in my lap. And what I felt was totally and utterly conflicted. 
it was a visceral physiological feeling of, oh no, now we have to choose. The deadline to accept or reject the offer was March 19th, five days after our current school opened up. There's a lot to love at the Magnet. It's close to home. It's on the way to lots of places we routinely go. It has a nice bell schedule. My daughter would automatically get a spot when she starts kindergarten. If we move anywhere else in the school district, which is actually something we hope to do in the coming few years, they could stay there. And all those PTA supplied extras. I actually found out that at the same time I was working on getting those 300 baskets for our school, the PTA at the Magnet raised $5,000 in three days for reopening, on top of a corporate donation of sanitizer for the whole school. My husband is far less conflicted than I am, maybe because he hasn't been involved in the day-to-day -day of our son's school this year. Since he wants to make the switch and I'm so conflicted and the deadline was looming, we went ahead and accepted the spot. But I said I wanted to revisit the decision at the end of this school year, which is in about nine more weeks. So that's where things stand currently. I found out the boy my son has bonded with in his class also got a spot at the Magnet and plans to switch. I felt relieved by this news that we wouldn't be the only family leaving for the magnet, that the other family leaving isn't also white, that my son would have a friend to transition with. I haven't told our son about any of this yet. Back to the Elise body quote about integration making it possible for kids to just be in relationship and form friendships or not, in full view of race, not in spite of it or because of it. I can't help wondering if my son would end up gravitating to the white kids in his class if he was in a school where there are more of them. And if I'm concerned about that, is there a point that I'm missing? A few days ago, I joined a new family welcome Zoom for the magnet. I was hoping it would help me tip the scales a bit. A friend of mine who is black and sends her daughter to the magnet was one of two parent representatives talking about their positive experiences at the school. I had called this friend after we got the offer email. I knew she'd understand my angst and would be straight with me about the dynamics at the magnet. At the end of our conversation, she told me there isn't a wrong or bad choice here. My son would benefit from being in the minority at our current school if we decide to stay, and we could perhaps bring some resources there. And, she said, the magnet would benefit from a white parent like me, who's been, quote-unquote, doing the work. She was fantastic on the welcome Zoom, but for some reason, seeing the several white faces among the other new families, hearing about the fantastic PTA, the leadership of which they're working to diversify, and just seeing the general polish of the whole thing was a weird kind of turnoff for me. It's a response I need to interrogate a bit more. Our current principal told me that if the people who are gentrifying the neighborhood zone to the school would send their kids there, the school would have higher enrollment, which means more funding, and would be more diverse and better integrated. 
that was hard to hear in light of the likelihood of leaving. Ultimately, I think my response to the magnet welcome Zoom just comes down to the reality that as weird as this first year of school has been thanks to the pandemic, we're part of a school community now and the idea of leaving it feels kind of like a betrayal. At the same time, I don't want to be a white savior. I want to have a humble and realistic view of what our continued presence at the school or our departure would mean and not overblow it. The same dedicated administrators and staff will still be there. But at the end of the day, even if the reason we leave isn't because of racist and unfounded fears, by leaving, we're taking enrollment dollars with us and also taking a bit of diversity. I've been daydreaming about the idea of switching to the magnet and while there, gleaning ideas that I can use to keep supporting our current school. But the dynamic would be different if we weren't enrolled there anymore. I recently listened to a series of episodes on the podcast called The Promised Land with Antonio Saunders. The series is called White Work, and he had a guest co-host, Laura Brewer, from the podcast How to Make Love, which is another favorite. One episode in the series centered on a school administrator in Houston who had discovered some sketchy differences in performance standards based on race. He was trying to figure out what to do with the information he'd uncovered and had this very white impulse to sit on it until he alone, through his own resources, had looked at it from every angle and figured out exactly the right thing to do. Only at that point, he would feel ready to go public and invite people into the problem solving. By the end of the episode, he'd come to see the flaws in that way of thinking. He realized he doesn't have to have it all figured out. He can live into the problem and invite people who have a stake in what happens alongside him, and they can figure it out together. It's okay to say, I don't know what's best here. So I'm trying to learn that too. All right, you've been listening to your neighbor's hood. And as always, give us a like, a rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends and join us on social. Stay open, stay curious, and make it a great day. Closer to history.